I had lunch the other day with someone who was telling me how scripts that involve dragons are always scrutinized because the dragon is such a symbolic creature in Chinese culture that you have to be very careful how you handle it. Today is part two of our interview with Eric Schwartzel, the Wall Street Journal's best-known oracle on the world of entertainment, whose book, Red Carpet, is must-reading for anyone who wants to understand what's happening between America and China and what it means to the rest of the world. From Ballard Studios in Washington, it's 13th and Park. The future doesn't belong to the faint heart. There is not a liberal America and a conservative America. There is the United States of America. We will make America strong again. We will get through this together. I can hear you. The rest of the world hears you. And the people who knock these buildings down will hear all of us soon. Let's talk about censorship for a second. You wrote, Chinese citizens view most movies as two-hour diversions. Chinese censors view them as two-hour threats. By the way, great line, right? And so true. But censorship isn't only something you can say that the People's Republic of China is responsible for. There's been censorship throughout history. You go back into America, you had the Hayes Code that basically was the decided on morality and what would play and what wouldn't play. And then as you wrote in your book, kind of reminding all of us about the impact it can have on the fate of all of us and history. You wrote about Georg Giesling, Hitler's de facto ambassador to Hollywood, and he put in all sorts of constraints. And they had certain things that we kind of fell in and abided by, one of which was like when Shirley Temple was on a, a shot in one of the beautiful movies and was talking to a Native American boy out, right? And anything that had to do with intermarriage. I think you said Tarzan and Jane, the idea that they might get married. That was completely verboten, right? But because we succumbed to that back in those days, you can argue that encouraged Hitler in his march to, you know, all the frightful things that happened. So censorship as it's practiced doesn't belong to one country and one nation. It, it has an historical precedent. And as you move forward, is censorship becoming more profound Control becoming more mandatory, not just by China, but by others that are trying to control the narrative? The answer is yes. We'll back up a little bit. I think that the Hayes Code is a fascinating example because the Hayes Code, which introduced all these rules about, you know, showing pregnant women on screen or showing married couples sharing a bed, really is kind of like puritanical (laughs) rules of the 30s and 40s, I think reflected the religious influence on Hollywood at the time. I mean, at one point, studios were sending Hayes Code rules to the Pope (laughs) for for input and approval. (laughs) Really shows you the contrast between where America was at that point and where Mao and his kind of atheist revolution was concurrently there. But but you're right, the the Nazi parallel was, was really a troubling one to explore. And there have been some terrific books written about this, but before the US entered the Second World War, Germany was a massive foreign market for Hollywood. And maintaining access to that market very quickly meant keeping narratives that Hitler didn't want to see off screen. And the parallels between that and the example you brought up about Seven Years in Tibet and Kunden were really too glaring to ignore. Mm -hmm. For instance, not only would Germany 
threatened to stop doing business with a studio, they threatened to stop doing business with affiliated businesses and companies of that studio. They stopped movies of Jewish stars from appearing on German screens. And, and also critically, they controlled not just German screens, but global screens. And here's, here's what I mean by that. German authorities would tell Hollywood studios, it's not enough for you to change this narrative. So one example was um, the film version of All Quiet on the Western Front, which explored World War One, And obviously that was a narrative that Hitler was very keen to control, Germany's involvement in the First World War, right? A narrative that in some ways he rode to, rode to power. And so when this film was released, German officials rejected it and ordered edits to the film, especially in its portrayal of German soldiers. And they said to Hollywood, it's not enough for you to change the German version of this film. We want you to change every version of the film and re-release it in a new format around the world. And they dispatched ambassadors in foreign countries to make sure that the theaters in other countries throughout South America or where, where have you were showing the German authorized version of All Quiet on the Western Front. And it tells you that Germany, much like China today, is not just emphasizing what its own people would see, but also understanding that the Hollywood film can become a commercial for any message you want, right? And it's this, and it automatically gives you access to a global audience for a particular brand of messaging. So the parallels there were really quite striking. And I think it's obviously also very interesting to see how the narrative switches when the US <laughs> enters the war and suddenly the studios become this kind of, you know, flag waving, right. you know, emblem of American might and patriotism. And as though the last several years had never had never happened. You know, the book focuses on China. I was going to ask if there are any other governments around the world that has attempted to do the same thing that China has done with Hollywood. It certainly happened. I mean, it's happened in Bahrain. It's happened in Saudi Arabia since they've let movie theaters back into their country. Russia before the war was was also controlling messaging in, in really overt ways. The key difference, though, and the reason that China is China's the book, and not, not uh, Hollywood's relationship with Bahrain, is because China had two kind of very potent elements. One was that political messaging and and the sort of the history of controlling the narrative. The other was the market. I right. mean, the the market is is at this point, you know, it's the second largest box office in the world. At some point, it likely will be the biggest box office in the world. And so it's a much different proposition whenever you're running a studio, if you think you might be banned in Bahrain, than if you'll be banned in China. Right. You had a chapter, I think a long chapter, in the last part of the book, talking about Kenya. You use Kenya as a metaphor. You could That could be a metaphor for many other countries around Africa and probably all throughout the developing world. But the bottom line on that, which was fascinating, I was in Kenya not long ago, is that description where they're bringing basically the satellite dishes in <laughs> on a Toyota, right, to bring into a very, very small village, knowing that basically what is going to happen is the villagers get the dishes, they then start to bring all those channels down from the sky. And those channels are purposely selected, of course, by the People's Republic of China. And so now, even in a small way, they're starting to control, you might say, the opinions of not just of China, but of their investments in Kenya and in Africa more broadly with media 
that they are totally controlling, right? And if you project that on in a place, in a continent where, it, as you know, most of the precious resources considered essential to the future of the planet are probably going to come from Africa, and they're doing that all over the continent while America is talking about yeah, we need to continue to push democratic ideals and we have to go after the terrorists and other issues, but not that. They are getting literally into the homes of all these future, maybe pro-China advocates all across the world. You're right. It is a long chapter. It's my longest chapter because <laughs> I, I couldn't get over what I saw when I went to when I went to Kenya. I went in early 2020. I recently returned last summer, actually, as well. But I was there in early 2020 to really look at what I thought was an underappreciated element of the Belt and Road Initiative. Hmm. We talk a lot about the Belt and Road Initiative and its investment in infrastructure and the political influence that it can have on campaigns and elections when politicians align themselves for or against working with China. But there was a, an, a cultural element, a soft power element that I thought was worth exploring. And the best case study I could find were the satellite dishes you referenced, which are produced by a Beijing company called Star Times and distributed to homes and villages across Africa. And critically, the state underwrites a lot of the cost of these dishes. So mm -hmm. they are not the only satellite dishes operating in Africa, but they right. are the cheapest. And, and the trade-off is you get a certain suite of channels with those dishes. And so these satellite dishes have frankly allowed a lot of, in this case, Kenyans, to understand the country that has appeared at their doorstep seemingly overnight. What was interesting, though, was, as you said, like the... The, the kinds of movies and TV shows that China is exporting are even more controlled than anything they're showing inside their own borders because they know that this is in many ways going to serve as the introduction to their country and society to for a lot of foreign audiences. And so I would ask a lot of people in Kenya, I would say, you know, describe China to me. And they all would use the same word, developed, developed, developed. They would all say it was a very developed country because every movie or TV show or every image of China that was being exported was of brand new metropolises and flashy cars and new cities, right? You were not seeing rural China. You were not seeing anything right. pre-WTO, I, I should say. Right. You're not seeing any, any pre-WTO mm. China reflected on screen. Well, Kenyan audiences always prefer a Chinese soap opera to an American soap opera. I don't know. But I think one thing that's critical to understand, especially in some of these countries that are tipping more toward a, if not authoritarian, than a more sort of socially conservative mm. track, is that there's going to be an interest among politicians in Chinese entertainment because it's going to more closely align with their values. It seems like we have, we talked in the beginning about dueling narratives. So if you look at the American side of it, you know, for years, Hollywood was producing creative work that was pushing the American dream, the American way of life, the role of the underdog, right? That's our narrative, but their narrative is we've got it all together. Our economy is sound. Look at all the wonderful things we're doing for you. And by the way, you're going to like all of our movie stars and all of our television stars, et cetera. Whoever wins that battle, isn't it true, Eric, in a way, wins the war? I think so. And I think I finished this book 
more convinced than ever that this is this has to be one of the more consequential stories of the next century mm -hmm. because we all accept how the American project, the American values after the Second World War shaped the modern age. If a different kind of schematic is used to shape the next century, you see the ripple effects play out from there. And, and, to, and I, I like your point because I think it goes beyond, you know, what politicians are elected or what soap operas you're watching, but really gets to the root of what narratives do we value and the question of the underdog, right? I think about this a lot where if you think about our, our national origin story is one of underdogs, right? I think mm -hmm. that might be one reason why we're so drawn to the to the upstarts. The, I'm, I'm working on a book right now about Star Wars. And so I've been thinking a lot about the rebels and why we want to root for the rebels. And and you're right, a world where the Chinese system is controlling the narrative is going to make that kind of story a lot less palatable. It's going to make that kind of story a lot less common. And that is why I think the movies have become this unbelievable proxy for understanding that. And to Justin's point, it seems like right now it's a bit lopsided because Hollywood is not doing anything to jeopardize access to China, but China's market has moved to a place where they don't really care if they get Hollywood movies. They'll be happy developing their own movie stars and shipping them around the world, much like we did 50 years ago. Well, Eric, we really appreciate the time. I encourage everyone listening to this and viewing this to read your book, Red Carpet. It's fabulously, again, fabulously written. I think you're not over-exaggerating when you say this is one of the more consequential issues of our times. I'm not sure you understood that going into the book. You mm. certainly do coming out of the book. We have to be have more conversations maybe in America, both to come to grips with what our part has been in allowing this to happen, and more importantly, what we're going to do about it. So thanks again. Terrific spending time with you. Can't wait to read your Star Wars book. I'm sure it's going to be every bit as interesting. And of course, we're all going to be rooting for the rebels, as you know. Yeah, well, it's been it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, and may the force be with you. <laughs> Thank you. Well, Adam, that was an absolutely fascinating conversation with Eric. As you said at the end, there it's one of the more consequential issues of our time because it's it's an untold story, really. I mean, he's told it, but it's an unknown story about how much Hollywood, an American industry that used to be putting out very pro-American content, it was a, a relationship with the State Department, Defense Department, essentially now reluctant and will never put out anything critical of the Chinese government or the Chinese Communist Party. It's pretty, it's a pretty remarkable thing to consider. And I didn't get a chance to ask Eric, but it's even more ironic in the sense that Walt Disney himself was a famed anti-communist. And right. I can't imagine what he must be thinking now to think that Michael Eisner, the former CEO of his company, went to China to meet with an official in the government there to basically say, well, we made this movie called Kunun, but the good news is no one saw it. The <laughs> irony there is, is rich, to say the least. Well, there was this film, actually a remake of a film called Red Dawn. I don't know if you remember that. Yeah. The original starred Patrick Swayze and Charlie Sheen, right? It had to do with communists trying to take over a town in Michigan. They decided to do a remake. This time, though, the script had the Chinese coming in, invading America, basically. And they put this whole film together. They 
filmed the film. And then the Chinese authorities took a look at this and said, absolutely not. And what happened was they forced the filmmakers to literally not only reshoot a number of scenes, but things like the Chinese flag or Chinese insignia on uniforms completely had to be changed. And it took a month or two of one studio making frame-by-frame changes so that the People's Republic of China was no longer the offending unit. It turned out to be North Korea, right? They took North Korea and supplanted them. So you can see how far Hollywood will go not to offend the Chinese. What Eric said very clearly, the box office there is so big, the economic ramifications so large that there aren't many people willing to, to show a lot of courage there. What's going on in Kenya, Belt and Road Initiative, China's pushing their content and their messaging out globally. And then at the same time, they've effectively suppressed any type of dissent about their regime globally as well, because Hollywood is the largest purveyor and creator of global content. In one sense, I have to give the Chinese Communist Party credit for executing the strategy of pushing their content out through the Belt and Road Initiative in Kenya, and then also leaning hard on on Hollywood. And I think just my own observation is, it's just to me, it's still remarkable that these Hollywood companies are allowing themselves and very willingly allowing themselves to be an instrument of that design by what some would call a genocidal regime based on what the Chinese government is doing to the Uyghurs. And no one seems to be squeamish about it. Well, it's interesting you brought in to this conversation Disney, as did Eric, right? And we have all this controversy that started with the legislation that passed in Florida that was aimed at some kind of control over curriculum for kindergartners, right? right? And it then became bigger than life. And then the governor was taking on Disney and Disney taking on the governor. It's still going on, right? Right. But Disney did not say much about the things we just learned about in this podcast, where if you're using the same principles, you would have, should have the same kind of courage and moral fortitude to want to put it on the line. They're not. They're not for a reason, because there's something called the bottom line. As people say, well, there's the metaphorical bottom line, and then there's the real bottom line. And I think we find in Hollywood today, and going back now several decades, that the bottom line that counted the most had dollars and cents attached to it. People in Hollywood are not shy about sharing values and speaking out when they see injustice. To my experience, I've never known too many Hollywood actors or people in Hollywood to be shy about that, yet their lips are absolutely sealed when it comes to doing anything that would offend the Chinese Communist Party. I find, for me at least anyway, they lose their moral high ground by not speaking out against injustice wherever they see it. America either takes a stand or it doesn't. And Hollywood has a part to play in this. Of course, they're playing to an international audience, which is why a lot of these things have come into play. But I think we should expect more. If Ronald Reagan were still alive and he had sway as he used to have, of course, in Hollywood, he would go to them and say, it's time for Morning in America too," And to start to double down on making sure that the world was reminded of the very things that make America special, because this truly, Justin, is a war of ideas that's taken on all sorts of ramifications in terms of world politics and world power. You know, we think about China, we think economics. I'm thinking about the hearts and minds of the world. And that is a battle that is on, and that is a war we must win. 
I couldn't agree more, Adam. Great show, great interview, and can't wait to do the next one. Same here. Don't miss future episodes by following us on Apple, Spotify, or other podcast platforms, or go to the YouTube channel where you can subscribe for free.